You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Harvey, a science teacher from New Zealand. In this episode, Michael outlines aspects of New Zealand, or Kiwi, culture, including Maori language. We also explore Michael's previous role as an industrial research chemist and the evolution into his current role as a high school teacher. With a strong interest in how technology can transform teaching and learning, Michael offers insights into how digital tools and approaches might be incorporated into the classroom. We find out more about Michael's plans for using non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, as a way of acknowledging, recording, and tracking students' achievements across a range of transferable or soft skills, such as teamwork, problem solving, and communication. We also explore the value of Minecraft, the online virtual building and creating platform, using storytelling, game mechanics, and student agency, as well as how these concepts can be applied in designing real-world classroom spaces that can contribute to how students interact with each other and increase student engagement and learning. Along with the technology, Michael also offers insights into the more human, relational aspects of teaching, such as connecting with other teachers and students, both locally and across the globe. Here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Harvey. Hello, Michael. Nice to be speaking with you. Yes, uh, kia ora from New Zealand. Um, and being from Aotearoa, New Zealand, I will start with um, something called a pipiha, which kind of uh, gives me, the listener, an idea of my Turanga Waiwai, the place where I stand. Um, so, uh, ko Titarangi a Timoanga. So, Titarangi is my mountain. Uh, ko Turanga Nui a Kiwa Timoanga. Uh, so, Turanga Nui a Kiwa is my uh, water, uh, my, my ocean, uh, that's uh, Gisborne. Uh, ko Waipawa Te Awa. So, my river is the Waipawa. Uh, ko Naki Pakiha Te Iwi. So, I'm a European uh, New Zealander. Ko Manatoki Te Marae. So, from my mother's side, my main meeting house is Manatoki, which is about 11 kilometers outside of Gisborne. Uh, ko Havi Tako Whanau and Ko Michael Tako Ingoa. So, my name is Michael Harvey and I am a science teacher based in sunny Marlborough. I think it's sunny at the moment. It's about 35 degrees outside, so I'm quite glad to be uh, inside uh, in the top of the South Island, T.Y. Punamu. Um, so in terms of my, my story, my narrative, um, as I said, I'm originally from Gisborne on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, and it's where my parents, uh, my, my other side come from, but my father's um, from England. Um, so I was born in 1980 there, and uh, yeah, um, and I went to high school at Gisborne Boys High School, which was kind of a, a poorer region, um, but it also had a very large um, Indigenous population, a Maori population, about 70% of students were Maori, and that, and that gave me an interesting uh, and different perspective on, on the nature of, say, education, um, because the traditional model of education is very individualistic. Um, whereas my fellow Māori students tend to work more collaboratively. 
Um, so I saw collaboration as an important part of, of learning. Uh, and then from there, I went uh, to Tiwanango or Waikato, uh, University of Waikato in um, Hamilton, where I did a Bachelor of Science uh, in Chemistry and Biology. Uh, I loved it so much in, in Hamilton, uh, more than what you expect, I think, is the name of the, the town, Loga. Um, and I stayed and did a <laughs> master's uh, with honours there. Uh, and then I moved to Australia uh, to do a PhD in Canberra at the Australian National University in Chemistry. So with my brand spanking PhD in Chemistry, I thought, well, I'm going to be an industrial chemist. And so I decided I'm going to move to England and have my OE experience in the UK. I moved up to the, the north of England uh, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and worked at um, a pharmaceutical company there. Uh, in Cramlington, uh, Stirling Pharmaceuticals, um, for a couple of years, and I was bored stiff. There was a little bit of creativity, but I was basically just doing uh, menial jobs, and I found it found it really boring. So what I did that you, for a couple what, of years. What were you yep, doing? Over. Like, what was the nature of your role in pharmaceutical? Well, actually, it was exciting in a sense. My first um, week there, I was put in charge of the pilot plant and the the chemical engineers didn't understand the difference between um, powders and solids in terms of rates of reaction so they weren't getting a reaction happening so and they were so just putting more and more do, of this do tube. they not do they not are they not aware of the surface area to rate a to volume well, ratio <laughs> no so they were, they were basically putting in these giant cubes of uh, lithium aluminium hydroxide which is a reducing agent and realizing well the reaction is not going we need a bit more in uh, but by, then, by the time the cubes had broken down, there was a massive explosion and about two million pounds worth of uh, API uh, blew up at three in the morning. So I had to go and kind of fix up the mess. Uh, that was, so that was exciting in that sense. But essentially, most of it was quality control and just doing the same experiment over and over again, just making little, little changes. And it wasn't quite what I was looking for in terms of adventure in life. Um, so then I did a couple of years in the UK uh, and then I came back to New Zealand I couldn't find a job, so I applied for a, a short job um, just out sort of sunshine um, in Australia, um, in, in Melbourne. Um, went over, didn't have any money to get back, so I didn't get the job. So I was kind of stuck in Australia trying to save enough money to get back to New Zealand. Um, and I ended up being some sort of kind of a pseudo life coach um, for, for um, primarily the Ch Chinese students at the University of Melbourne in Monash. So that involved, not, well, started by just helping them revise for chemistry exams and physics exams. But then it was also how to open bank accounts, um, how do you deal with Australian cultural mores, which they had no real experience in being Chinese. Um, so I did that for six months. Uh, but then I applied for a job at the uh, Ministry of Employment Innovation uh, back in New Zealand in Wellington, government job, where I was a kind of a, an advisor uh, in terms of patents. So I became just like Albert Einstein. Um, maybe I was thinking, hey, I could just be like Albert Einstein, try and develop a theory while working as a patent examiner um, at, in, in Wellington. I that for um, about five years. But again, the, the, the job that didn't really motivate me just probably didn't motivate Einstein. And I was doing other things in the background. Um, like what? I quite like enjoyed, what? well, exactly, yeah. so I was quite enjoyed um, computers. So uh, thinking around with programming and things like that. What, like era? what sort of year are we talking? Uh, this was the, the worlds of Raspberry Pi was just beginning to, to turn up. Um, so, yeah, so tinkering around with 
But what year um, was it, though? Oh, okay. What years was it? So this was now about 2010. I okay. Think. And it I don't really know what that means, what you just said. What does that mean, the Raspberry Pi thing? Oh, the Raspberry Pi. So they're, they're basically uh, little mini computers you can program. Yeah. And they can do little functional things like um, set up your TV to to turn off certain points. Or you can – I'm using it at the moment, actually, to set up um, or connect um, – um, solar panels, for example. So I've got automated watering in my garden now, which helps. Um, yeah, so just little little, little microprocessors. Um, so that's quite quite useful. Uh, and also, I'm love the great outdoors. So I was also involved with an organisation called uh, Adventure Wellington, which um, was providing services for um, students, uh, not students, uh, just for the general public, um, to go outside and see the great outdoors. And also an organisation called Chalkle, um, which was uh, teaching the general public about general scientific concepts uh, as well. And I guess Chalkle's where I started to think about, well, maybe I want to go into education. So um, after uh, the stint as a pattern examiner, I decided to become a teacher. Yep. Um, so from then on, I went to Teachers College in, in Wellington. Uh, and then I started teaching at uh, St. Peter's College in Auckland. So basically, I had a conversation with the principal. I kind of understood his ethos and um, went on from there. So I taught a bit of physics and chemistry at St. Peter's. Did that for three years. Uh, and then the principal who uh, had hired me had retired. A new principal with a different kind of philosophy with education um, was hired. And so we disagreed slightly. Um, so I decided to, what do I to move on. Can you give us the short version of what that means? Uh, he was more the idea that we need to get bums on seat and make money out of the entire process of education. And I was um, philosophically a little bit different than that view of what the purpose of education was. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So then I said, well, I'll, I'll go, I'll, I love travel, so I'll give international teaching a go. So I decided to apply for positions overseas, and I managed to get a position in China at the British School of Nanjing. Uh, again, as a science teacher, and I moved to China and did that for a couple of years working uh, in China and from China moved to Malaysia, which was my last contract international teaching for three years at um, Marlborough College in Malaysia, where I taught um, primarily um, a little bit of computer science, but primarily physics and um, chemistry. So yeah. what was the transition like initially for, because uh, you'd already had a you know, working as a grown-up type thing in industry and then you're kind of coming back and doing teaching, what was the transition to teaching like? Um, yeah, it was interesting because I, I, I kind of have a mindset of being still in the mindset of a, being a researcher. So my approach to education is seeing the classroom as a laboratory. So the idea I'm doing act, action research every, every five minutes, um, so just seeing, well, Let's see if this works. Oh, it doesn't work. Okay, I'll try again. I'll do something different. So, for yeah, those, that was kind of my... For those people that don't know what action research is, especially in, say, a classroom, what, what is it? Uh, action research is basically the idea of being a practitioner, um, a academic even, um, if Stephen's listening. What's that? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> So this is an idea uh, one of my colleagues I know in Australia has put forward uh, that teachers should be academics. So they're actually doing a practical um, art, the art of teaching, 
but also they're looking at research and applying that research uh, from academic settings into their classrooms. So it's like pre-academics. Yeah. That's so kind of how I, I approach Yeah, go for it. So what, does the, what's, what is the action research, though? Like for somebody that's not even a teacher, what's, what does that even mean? What, so what basically it? it's looking at, looking at the research out there, educational research, and then trying to apply it in your own kind of settings. Um, so, for example, um, I'm quite big on um, the effective teaching protocol from the University of Waikato, from um, Bishop and Berryman. Um, and so how can I apply that in the classroom? So the idea of um, developing relationships first with students uh, before even teaching begins. Um, well, that taps in to the, to the yeah. collaborative, possibly, to the collaborative approaches that you mentioned early on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea that learning um, is also a collaborative endeavour, it's not just me teaching um, straight from the front of the classroom, kind of being the, the guide by the side rather than um, the sage on the stage, um, and the evidence for that and the reasonings behind that. And just so action research is basically a little two-week cycle where you try something in the classroom, see if it works, then go back and reflect. If it doesn't work, adjust that and start the cycle again. If it does work, then again, you, you've got now you can use that and then you move on to your next um, bit of research. It's actually more effective, I guess, when you do it in groups of, of teachers um, rather than just by yourself, because if, it, if it's especially in secondary, you've got one classroom um, and then you, you can have other teachers working with the same class and working with kind of similar ideas around research. Yeah. So where am I? I'm in Malaysia and now I'm back in New Zealand after COVID. Um, yeah, so that's the reason why I'm in New Zealand in, in many ways, because uh, the last 18 months in Malaysia were essentially in my apartment uh, doing online remote learning, uh, and that's not really my vision of international teaching. Um, yeah, <laughs> a bit more of a challenge. So what, what's, what, what's your current role kind of um, yeah. made my up My current of? role uh, is a teacher in charge of physics at Marlborough Boys College in uh, New Zealand, yeah, in, in Blenheim. And there's a little bit of, also, I'm getting my pies, uh, finger mini pies as well. I'm having conversations with the technology teachers, so I'm also going to be involved with um, computer programming and trying to actually link industry um, with our students. Because a lot of our students think that, uh, especially uh, Blenheim is quite a large viticulture region. A lot of our students think the only jobs available are picking grapes, which I'm pointing out to them, well, industry is actually demanding programmers so they can, program robots to pick those grapes. And there's a lot more opportunities in that than there is in just picking grapes. So the students aren't quite aware of, of the advantages of artificial intelligence and machine learning and programming um, on the industry and where they can actually fit in. You don't know what you don't know, basically. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I understand from what we were talking about earlier that you're quite interested or very interested in gam what's called gamification and also with technology. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I guess, well, a, a, a good starting point, I would think, is the definition of gamification uh, in the education sense. So basically, uh, gamification is the application of essentially typical game elements, um, for example, point scoring from quizzes, or the use of badges, which I'll come back to um, very soon, 
um, developing rules of play within a classroom um, to basically apply that to education in the classroom, these game-based um, kind of uh, functionalities. Um, what does so that look I'm, like I'm quite, in everyday, like yeah, what's well, an everyday example? Well, especially with boys who are very competitive, they really like um, different um, kind of short recall quizzes. Um, are you perpetuating a gender norm there? Um, well, also one of my interests, which we won't go into, it's not very technology-based, is how to teach boys. Okay. Um, and boys do actually enjoy, especially if they're top of the food chain, um, they oh, enjoy yes. competition. Yep. Those boys at the bottom, not necessarily. But I, I found it very effective in my particular school at the moment, which is essentially a boys' school, that we um, use recall quizzes like uh, Kahoot's and quizzes. And actually, the last one we've got has been uh, Block It. Uh, they've really enjoyed that, which are kind of really off-the-shelf um, online games. And they're just uh, ways that students can... And the advantage of Block It, actually, is that you can work in groups because it also enhances the idea of collaboration, even though there is competition between groups. Um, yeah, I find the boys really thrive um, with the, the competition model um, of, of education uh, in terms of even just working in small groups. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just one, one example of where gamification is used. And then you, you put them up on a scoreboard over the space of a term. And then at the end of the term, you bankrupt yourself by buying pizza for them for the, uh, the top, top three or top five or top groups. I guess they um, need they a prize a at the end, you know, know. how these things <laughs> the work typically. Extrinsic <laughs> motivation, that is, um, yeah, those kind of ideas. So that's just one example of gamification. Um, also, uh, oh, yep, go for it. Do you yep. do you have it in like every every one of your lessons or it's just kind of selective or how do you sort of blend it in or weave it in? Yeah, I, I tend to have it as a starter. So basically the, the, the book it or the quizzes is a starter for the start of a lesson on prior information from the previous lesson. So it kind of primes them to think about the previous lesson and what we've gone through, and then we can extend it in the, in the lesson coming up. There's a phrase so a for short. that. I read about that in a research paper just yesterday. There's a phrase, oh, I can't, it's like a sort of like not selective recall. It's something like that, but it's like yeah, this idea. Practice. Yes, recall yes. practice. Yeah. I think I was yeah. talking. Yep, and and then also you can do interleaving with that, so you can actually bring back concepts that they have not they've been doing weeks ago, and then bring it into the into the quizzes as well. So it's always kind of bringing it back into the forward idea of memory. So you make still making those connections between the uh, synapses in the brain, and they can still remember things. Because that's one of the issues you have with a curriculum potentially is that you do one topic, and then you'll forget about it. Then the next topic then you'll forget about it. Whereas if you're constantly kind of interleaving and also space practice um, allows them to constantly be recalling that information. So it's one of the advantage of that particular approach. Um, the disadvantage potentially is they're kind of multi-choice questions. Um, so it doesn't necessarily, necessarily require much metacognition, um, but it's a, it's a start, really, yeah. I mean, it sounds as though they, they enjoy it. I'm assuming the students enjoy it, this sort of Yeah, approach. I mean, it's... It's interesting to see the differences they have with different applications. Some they don't really enjoy and some they really enjoy. The ones they tend to enjoy, actually, I've discovered, are the ones where they work in small groups together. Um, look at what's interesting because some of them are also taking computer programming. 
so they can actually hack the website from behind. So they end up with extraordinary amounts of, of points. It's like, how did you get 1.2 billion points? And like, That's horrifying and uh, hilarious at the same time. Indeed. It was like, well, and I don't necessarily say it's a bad thing. It's well, congratulations for using those skills. Um, so you have to be very careful about what games you actually choose because some have actually learned to hack, which, yeah, that's, that's fine by me. They're learning. Um, and, and one thing I've also done is I'm part of uh, this organization called Core Education. And what we're doing is we're also looking to um, gamify the entire assessments um, scheme around junior science as well uh, by developing um, NFTs. Um, which are little badges, uh, non-fungible tokens, little badges which are focused on the nature of science um, kind of skills. So, for okay. example, research skills and inquiry skills, yeah. So now, just, just again, for those people that might be listening that have kind of, you know, it's this foreign language, I, I myself saw NFT this morning and I was thinking, oh, here it is again. This thing for the past 18 months is, seems to be blipping and coming into general conversation. Um, but what is that? And, yeah, what is it? In, so, if- yes, a non-fungible um, token. So basically what the students have is they have a, a digital wallet and the token is like a digital form of, I guess, a digital badge in a sense, which goes in their wallet and stays with them. So, for example, if an employee in four or five years' time goes into the wallet, because they can add it to curriculum vitae, they can see what skills a particular student has. So I've had lots of conversations um, with the Marlborough uh, Chamber of Commerce and what, because um, most of the students at my school kind of stay within the district. So it's important to understand well, what the businesses um, actually want in their students. And it's like, well, you don't necessarily te- have to teach them much content because we can teach them um, when they get into our, um, into our job. But what we really want is we want to develop those skills. So are they on time? Are they respectful? Can they work as part of a team? And those are the soft skills that can actually be um, placed into a wallet. You get a little badge, team player. And that means the employer is aware that this student has the skills to be a team player or to be able to critically analyze data, for example, you're going to a more scientific job. So how do you approach that? Because, I mean, I think I think it's a fantastic idea, but how do you approach that in terms of, without getting too specific, but I guess it's that curriculum mapping kind of territory, how do you sort of plan for that, I suppose, these sort of transferable skills soft skills and then how does it map to what they're doing in the class how do you is it a is it a long-term sort of plan or short-term do you have to collaborate with other teachers how does um well uh, well at the moment it's just just between the science department but i would eventually like to see it done with other departments as well um and because basically in secondary you have one class but that class shares many other teachers so it would be great to be able to collaborate with those teachers and see where certain students' strengths and weaknesses are so we can build that kind of digital portfolio up for them. Um, I guess in terms of lesson design, um, what you're looking at is you've got, well, uh, what you have to learn as a learning objective, but also the skills that are required in order to learn that particular concept. For example? Um, so, so, for example, you've got a, uh, an internal assessment which involves uh, looking at uh, developing, trying to discover the relationship between two variables. 
So the skills involved in that will be requiring what does, that mean in, what does that mean in everyday language? Oh, to be a physics teacher. Um, yeah, so you, you're basically looking at a, um, a system. Okay, so or pendulum. Pendulum is an example. Pendulum, okay. okay. So what's the relationship between um, the time the pendulum takes to go up to the top and back down to the bottom, known as the period, and also the length of the pendulum? So you, the, the knowing would be like, well, know the relationship. But then what are the skills you require to know that relationship? So that would require um, skills around graphing, skills around what's an independent variable, what's a dependent variable, how do you, how do you determine that, um, how do you linearize um, data. These are all skills that are still required and embedded into that knowledge, but they're not necessarily going to be assessed in the assessment um, and they're not going to be recognized in the assessment or all, all, all the assessment will say, well, he knows that relationship, but it hasn't shown how that student has um, acquired data, uh, how he's dealt with errors, for example, or how he's mathematically manipulated that data. That's not part of that. So those are all those badges that could be added onto it and placed in that digital wallet. Yeah. Is it sort of like, is it, is it sort of accurate to describe it as these are invisible unless they're actually sort of acknowledged and measured and, like, this is what the token is is hoping to achieve is that kind of, it's yeah, like it's. exactly. Yeah, because otherwise they're sort of, like, fleeting and they're, they're sort of maybe like a default is to focus on the, the course content as such but mm. not. And also you'd be working in a small team. So that would also be you've successfully worked in the team to solve a problem, and that isn't really assessed in the standard, but something you've done. So you should get a little badge for that. So what? When I, I was going to ask, well, I asked you earlier about what are some of the other technologies that you sort of work across, or you know, work with your students um, on. Um, yeah, well, especially with junior science, um, I've been using Minecraft um, quite a lot. Um, and I was thinking also, well, Minecraft as a technological tool is great, but it can also be applied um, not just in terms of lesson design, not just uh, uh, digitally, but also can be done non-digitally. Or you can work it the other way. How, how are you going to use um, non-digital tools in a digital way? So, for example, Minecraft illustrates the importance of play, um, okay. which we... Just, just, just to define what... For, and again, this is for people that there's Minecraft stuff, toys and books in, and, uh, you know, but what is, what is this thing called Minecraft? Okay, yeah. So Minecraft is basically an application or a program where you build worlds out of blocks. All those yeah. coloured blocks, yes. I'm sure All those different coloured blocks. Yep. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with Roblox, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's basically um, world building um, and either the students build the world or teachers can build the world around it. And then that can be a learning environment for the particular student. So you could have, for example, if you want to learn about World War I, you could have an entire Minecraft world set in the, um, on the beaches of, of Anzac Cove. And actually I've seen that. Auckland University, some students in New Zealand actually built that. They recreated Anzac Cove um, in the Minecraft world. What's, what is it? Why is it so um, kind of, why do teachers really like Minecraft and why do students get in, like they, they seem very enthusiastic about, you know, 
working with it. But what what is it, why is it different to just some some other kind of blocky game? Well, I think that's also down to how you design your Minecraft lessons. Um, so I think there's actually three important factors that or principles that you have to incorporate in your Minecraft uh, world. Otherwise, the students actually do just turn off. Um, and that's basically the environment has to be interesting. So the example of Anzac Cove, that's pretty interesting to give students a perspective, at least in a blocky kind of way, what it means to be a digger on, at 5 a.m. on the 25th of April, 1915, uh, as they enter Anzac Cove. Um, but also it's important that you have agency. So the students actually have choices based on game design. Um, so they actually have different outcomes. So that, there's actually not just one learning outcome for the student, depending on the choices he or she makes. They can have um, different um, aspects. And the other one can is the importance of, of, of storytelling, um, the idea of narrative, and, and that can be applied outside the, the Minecraft world as well. Students actually like to be taken along for a, a, a ride in which, in terms of the storytelling, they're actually the centre of the story. and They really enjoy that part of it too. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So when you were talking about Minecraft earlier, you mentioned about like it could be have further application in the classroom. What what did you mean or what does that look like? What what are the options there? Because if it's this blocky electronic game that's on the computer, and the students are sort of in that world, but like are you crossing into the fourth dimension or something or breaking out of the computer? What are you, where are you heading with the, this sort of thinking? Yeah, well, I, I guess the way I look at it, in order to have an effective um, Minecraft world, what you're looking at is three major components. Um, you've got the, the environment of that particular world. Um, you've got the student choice involved in that world. And you've also got storytelling involved in that world as well. So kind of to break that down in terms of environment, um, there has to be certain flexibility in a Minecraft world. And I think there has to be that certain flexibility in the actual physical uh, environment uh, of your um, classroom. Um, so end of last year, um, we had speeches um, at, the, at Christmas time for those staff that were leaving. And, and one, uh, one particular teacher did mention one piece of advice um, in his very long speech, but still I was listening, um, that you should burn the teacher's desk. Um, so the idea that there shouldn't be a sit point where you sit down and just observe the classroom. You should be constantly walking around the classroom and getting, developing those relationships between your students, sitting down, giving those one-on-one -on -one conversations of where learning can go and where the learning's at and what next steps are that can be involved. So there has to be certain um, flexibility as, as a teacher uh, in terms of the environment as well, the physical space. So one thing I've done um, is that I don't have the, the, the seats in rows, which you probably expect from a traditional classroom. Um, I have a U-shaped um, structure. So it means that the students are in closer proximity for kind of collaborative work or small one-on-one -on -one conversations. And just by making that small change, that's actually changed completely the environment of the classroom. So rather than the students just expecting me to be the, the sage from the stage, giving them information, 
then they're, they're, they're more willing to talk to their partner and say, well, what do you think about this? Um, and then kind of like the think share, pair share model. Um, and then they're kind of more collaborative in their learning, which I think is a big transition that that small change uh, in terms of environment has, has done. Um, so in terms of, of storytelling, I'm, I'm really big on um, rambling stories uh, with my students. So the case in point being a science teacher, um, uh, I don't... I can neither confirm nor deny that at this point in time. <laughs> Indeed, me ramble? Never. Um, so the case in point would be, say, um, Rutherford's gold foil experiment. Um, so a bit of, bit of history I know there. that one. I know that one. Yeah. So rather than me just giving the results um, to the students, and that's quite dry, uh, I tend to have the story of where Rutherford was born and Mutuaka here in the South Island, where he lived uh, in Havelock, which is actually important to, to me, my school, because Havelock's only about a 10 minute, 20 minute drive from the school where I'm at. Uh, and also his relationship with his postdocs, kind of adding a human element to it. And then the ramifications of that being, of course, um, the nuclear bomb and destructive Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which isn't particularly nice, but it, it kind of, by, by storytelling, it brings the students into it. Um, they see the connections. Um, and I think when students have connections to the learning, then they're going to be more engaged in the learning. And it actually makes it a lot more accessible. So that's the kind of the power of storytelling, which, which we see in Minecraft as well with all the um, um, story mode, especially in, in Minecraft. And the final one is the idea of, of game mechanics and agency. So previously discussed kind of game mechanics and gamification uh, in the first section of this podcast, um, but also the idea of agency. So one thing I'm also implementing is um, a universal design for learning. Um, Ooh, that uh, yeah. sounds interesting. Indeed. What does that, that what's involved with that? <laughs> Indeed. So universal design for learning is the idea that making uh, one particular change for one group of learners actually benefits all. It's universal. So the case in point would be an example of having a uh, access ramp or someone in a wheelchair. That not only benefits the person in the wheelchair, but it also benefits all those students who um, can go up the ramp themselves rather than going those arduous steps up to the classroom. Um, so what that actually involves is you're looking at the before you even start the learning cycle, you're looking at the individual students and assessing with them in conversation what their learning needs are going to be, and then uh, then changing the, the learning based around those um, those needs, as it were. So, for example, I have a number of, well, last year I had a number of dyslexic students. Um, so rather than having them doing written assessments, I sat down and had the conversations um, with them to see if they actually understand the scientific principles. Um, rather than having them do a written exam. And they're more than able to explain the science, they just they couldn't really explain it using the written word. And I guess that's where technology comes in as well, because I also use um, Flipgrid. And since we're on a podcast, let's be meta, I also uh, get the students sometimes to do podcasts where two of them sit down, they have a conversation, they record it, and then I can actually assess whether they actually understand the scientific concepts or the questions they ask and also their responses. And how do they go with the technology that's involved with that? Is it um, is it challenging, or is it just stuff they're already using, or is there a bit of a learning curve for them? Um, well, the Minecraft stuff they they jump on. They, they were already doing that in class to trying to avoid the work already. So I thought, well, I'm going to incorporate that then, so they can do some learning with it. 
Uh, yeah, Flipgrid, they're not really a big fan of Flipgrid, to be honest, um, because I feel there's a little bit of um, whakama or embarrassment um, about yeah. the, the face being on screen. Yeah, Flipgrid so that, being pretty- like a little notice board type thing, but with little sh- short video clips that you kind of share yeah, with each other. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I guess it's a bit more confronting than an audio-only approach. Yeah. I found that the podcasts were actually quite useful for that regard is because there's, there's only their voice. They weren't as embarrassed as it were being teenagers, um, having just their voice. And you can go, extract lots of information from that as well just by kind of the questions they ask. Yeah. And are they, are they kind of, you, you might set an assessment item and then they then use that, that mechanism or that environment to, to kind of come up with their submission or, you know, on, the, on whatever the topic is. Yeah, so I provide choice in that regard. Um, so some students are more than happy to write long essays, which I have to mark. And, and, and that's what they like doing, and that's how they can express their learning, so I'm fine with that. But other students um, prefer other modes, like some are very artistic, so they do um, a brainstorm diagram or some sketch noting, uh, which illustrates that they understand the concept as well. Yeah, yeah that's very good that you, you know offer alternative approaches, flexible approaches, and do they... Do do they sort of, is there a 50-50 split or is it just kind of, you know, it depends on the different cohort of learners or? Yeah, it depends very much on the cohort of learners. I mean, junior science is a lot easier um, because there is a bit more constraint uh, in senior classes because of the requirements of of assessment um, from the NZQA. But with junior science, yeah, there's been a a vast range of different responses um, based on the different modes that I've provided. And does it, it's been and good increased engagement as well, which is a plus. That's good. Um, is, is it impacted upon how long it takes you to go through all the assessments or has it streamlined the approach maybe? Um, it actually kind of streamlines the approach because what I, uh, essentially what I do anyway is I sit down with each individual student um, and go through the assessment providing feedback in real time rather than just giving written um, feedback or oral feedback. Um, so that was always going to happen. Um, so once I've marked it, it's about the same time. Once once the the, the process is set in place, it's about the same time. And are they all pretty much confined to the world of assessment within the classroom, or have there been some breakout hits where they've they've kind of been more broadly published somewhere, or you know the students have taken on their own agency to, you know do their own sort of little project or something like that? Well, not necessarily on science, um, but... Uh, the world I, does not necessarily uh, revolve around science. They've, know, they've yeah, transferred um, their skills to other areas, possibly. Yes. So, for example, a couple of students in my senior science class who were really into crypto, and they discovered that I was into crypto as well. Um, so they're actually gonna, becoming more my financial what, what is this crypto you speak of? Cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin <laughs> and your, yeah, and Ethereum and other wonderful things, which is tanking at the moment, but never mind. Um, it's a long-term goal. Um, so what, so, what, yeah. the, what did the students do with this kind of? Yeah, well, they're actually using it as an investment strategy. because so it was kind of interesting to have conversations, not about just about science, as you mentioned. There's a lot of students very interested in how to do investments at 13 and 14. And we were discussing different investment portfolios. And a couple of students um, are really into investing in cryptocurrency. 
um, and they were teaching me things that I knew nothing about uh, in terms of they went off and researched it, they gave me all the information. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe I will do that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of gone on their own little tangent um, using the skills in terms of research that we've been using in class but for a different context. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it is that's sort of like a, a very real world example of something that's kind of like um, out there, part of the students' lives. Um, and then the fact that they've kind of been interested enough to, to latch onto it and want to further explore it. And then they're using skills that they've developed in your class or, you know, maybe with other, other, are other teachers in the school do, taking these similar kind of U shape classroom design approaches and, well, the U-shaped class design was actually the chemistry teacher. Um, so I went, walked into her class and and because it's, I, I tend to do that. I just walk into classes and see what other teachers are doing. Um, and it's like, oh, that, that's working for you. Um, so how, how, how did you structure it? What do you do? We had a conversation. And that's why I've taken it on board because, well, it's working for her. So let's see if it works for me. That's the kind of action research part as well. Just to summarise, um, that... We should always look to improve our practice as teachers um, and that technology is but a tool and that pedagogy should be at the forefront. And in terms of lesson design, there are, there are things that we can take from technology. But at the end of the day, the, the heart of education is the relationships. In this episode, I chatted with Dr. Michael Harvey, a science teacher. You can find out more. You can find more about this episode in the show notes, including links to more information about Michael, his blog, and portfolio. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.